So, but we're not there in, the, in our story of the Bible today. We're in the book of Jude. So let's go there. We're going to look specifically at verses 22 and 23 this morning as we unlock the book of Jude and we begin to look into Jude. How do we contend for the faith? Jude says, we read it together just a moment ago. How in the world is it that at a time where I want to write to you about our common salvation, by the way, who is Jude? He's the half brother of Jesus, right? Mary had other children with Joseph after Jesus came along. So she's not a perpetual virgin. She is very much a married woman that had other kids. We know that Jesus both had brothers and what? Sisters as well. And uh, so Jude is a half-brother of Jesus Christ. He's also the brother of who? James. And James is a half-brother of Jesus Christ. And Jude says, I'm writing as a half-brother of Jesus, but even more than that, I'm writing as, what does he say at the very beginning of the book? A servant. A servant of who? A servant of Jesus Christ, my Savior. So he's talking to us as believers, as a fellow believer who knew Jesus both physically as a brother and spiritually as a mentor, as a Savior, And he's writing to us and he says, I would want to write to you at a time where I could talk about our common salvation. How many times does Paul do that? I write to you, beloved people in Ephesus, of the common salvation that we have grace and peace be multiplied to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he goes on and over and over. We see it in Romans. We see it in Ephesians. We see it in Corinthians. We see it in Thessalonians. We see it all through the New Testament. This And Jude says, at a time where I'd love to write to you concerning that common salvation that we have, there's a more important issue I need to write concerning. And that is this. Christians, we need to contend for the faith. The faith that was once for all given to us, we need to be contending for the faith. As much as we want to talk about our salvation and and encourage one another in our salvation, there is an urgency in the mission of God that we contend for the faith. And then he spends almost 15 verses explaining who we are to contend against. And they're like stars that move in the sky. What good are they for navigation? No good. Foamy waves, what good are those? Um, he uses all kinds of different illustrations to describe these false teachers. He says they're in it for their own self. They're waterless clouds. What good's a waterless cloud? Give shade. Doesn't really promote growth though. How about a fruitless tree twice dead, uprooted? Not gonna, it's dead, it's not producing fruit, and it's uprooted, so it's never going to produce what? Fruit. And he says, there are those that are out there who are professing to be followers of me, and they're proclaiming my truth, but the Spirit of God is not in them. They are powerless. They wander from doctrine to doctrine, and movement to movement, and trendy thing to trendy thing, and they don't know me, and be careful, because they're already out in the world. And he says, you need to understand who these people are and what they're like, because in the end times, they're going to become more and more increasing in the world we are. They're going to look good on the outside, but there's nothing on the inside. It's kind of like cotton candy, if you ever ate cotton candy. You get this big thing at the fair, and it's like, oh, this is going to be so good. And you put it in your mouth, and what happens? Gone. It's like, where'd it go? And you eat this big ream of uh, cotton candy, And number one, you have a stomach ache when you're done. But number two, it's like, 
there was no nutrition. There's no value. There's no substance to it. It all sounds good, but there's nothing in it. And Jude says, he says that these are those, uh, look back up at verse 15, or uh, verse, let's go to verse 14. It was also these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all to convict the ungodly of their deeds and ungodliness. And they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. They do things to try to gain the advantage of others. They're deceivers. They're not, they're not honest with who they are. By the way, this is very much the reference to Noah and the flood here. Um, and then he says, but you, look at verse 17, but you must remember beloved, he's writing to believers, true believers, the predictions of the apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last times, there will be what? Scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause what? Is there a division in the church of God today? Yeah, there is. Worldly people, what are they devoid of? If you don't have the Spirit of God, are you saved? What is the proof that a person's saved? That they walk in the Spirit, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And second is like the, the first, love your neighbor as you love your... How do you do that? Because you love yourself a lot. You love yourself more than you love God, actually. So if you're going to be different and you're going to serve God first, who's going to lead you to empower you to do that? The Holy Spirit of God. So he's talking to believers who are indwelt by the Spirit, people who are empowered by the Spirit. And he says those that we're working against, those that we're contending for the faith with, are the ones that don't have the Spirit. They might say they have the Spirit, but they don't walk in the Spirit. Their actions, their words don't match their actions. Remember the half-brother of this author is who? James. Do you remember in James chapter 2 what James says? Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. You know, he, he, he flat says that you say one thing, but your body does something totally different. Even the demons believe in God, don't they? Jude's argument is demons know God is real. And what do they do in his presence? They tremble in his presence. Why? They know he's real. They know he's powerful. They know who he is. I think as humans today in a 2022 world, we don't know who God is. Well, you know who God is. He's the man upstairs. No, he's not the man upstairs. Jesus might be the man upstairs, man and God in man form, but he's not the man upstairs. He's an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God. The creator of all things, sustainer of all things, and the maker of all things. So he says, he goes down through his argument here, it's these that are causing divisions, but you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in what? The Holy Spirit Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And we spent a plethora of time in our last meeting talking about, number one, the fact that we can know we have eternal life. That is something the Bible is absolutely clear about. 
You can know that you have eternal life. John said this, these are written that you might know that you have what? Eternal life. This is something that is knowable. It's not something that we got to try to attain or we got to get. God says this, my son, Jesus Christ died that you might have what? What verse proves that? How about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only one of ever existence, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, whoever puts their weight in him, should not be eternally separated from God, should not perish, but have everlasting... What is the opposite of everlasting life? So you either have everlasting death or you have everlasting life. Romans tells us, for all, or, or for, the, for all have sinned and fall short of what? So thus, you can't have eternal life on your own. You can only get it by means of somebody else's action on your behalf. Well, Romans goes on to tell us what? For the wage of sin is, death is always eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. And how do you get eternal life? By means of who? Jesus Christ, our our Lord. And God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for who? For us. So why would Christ die, offer eternal life, and then say, well, you can't be sure that you have it? What kind of God is that? Or better yet, what about a God who since the beginning of time, when man fell at the beginning of time, already proclaimed that a Messiah would come, he would have victory over death, he'd have victory over Satan, and he would for eternity save his people from their sin. And that they could know that they're saved because God's going to give them something to ensure the fact that they actually are saved and that they can lean on the fact that this person is present with them to know that they are saved because they're going to not be able to function in their own power alone, but they're going to have power by means of who? The Holy Spirit of God. And notice what Jude appeals to here in this passage. He says, the ones who are false teachers, they're devoid of the Spirit of God, but those who are really saved, they have power by means of who? The Holy Spirit of God. But Jude is very clear that there are those who are going to do the work of ministry, who are going to proclaim Jesus Christ, who are devoid of the Spirit, even though they proclaim the Spirit. So the question is, how do you know? How do you know whether or not you're saved? How do you know whether or not you have the gospel? Look at what it says in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves where? We love him because he first. So if you're keeping yourself in the love of God, how do you do that? How do you do that? Number one, you're a student of his word, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Number two, what motivated Jesus to die on the cross in the first place? John 3, 16, go back to where we started. For God so... Love the world, that he did something about it. You know what? Love is not a feeling. We interpret love as a feeling today because we like to manipulate people's emotions, don't we? Well, I just don't love you anymore. 
What does that mean? It means I made a willful decision not to show you affection. Love is a willful choice. We love God because he first, did he choose to love us or did he have to love you? Did he choose Israel or did he have to have Israel? God chose. Matter of fact, Ephesians goes even further and says, he chose us before when? The foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you. He wanted a relationship with you. He wanted you to be his child. He wants all to be saved. But the problem is what? Just like in the days of Noah, God provided an ark for who? Anybody that would get in? Who got in? Very few. Because they love the world more than they love God. And they all made a willful choice to follow their passion rather than God's will. The Bible says, just like in the days of Noah, so will the end times be before my coming. And today we are, being, we are offering choices to people to be saved or to go into eternal judgment. We're all set for eternal judgment when we're born. We're all set against God. The Bible says, for all have what? What does the word sin mean? We just did it in our Nerf War VBS, right? It means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It means you miss God's standard. And whether you miss by an inch or a mile, does it matter? A miss is a what? A miss is a miss. And we fall short of God's glory. We come short of the standard by which we have access to heaven. So we need somebody else in our place to take our place and to impute to us his righteousness so that we can be accepted before God the Father. And who imputed righteousness towards us when we were still sinning? Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become what? The children of God. The word might there doesn't mean that maybe by chance it happens. No, it means it's, a, it's an imperative in the Greek. You will become a child of God when that transaction takes place. So as an opening illustration, I want to take you back in time a little bit. The year is 2002. And uh, the month is May. The date is May 26th, 2002. A day that probably most of us, you remember where you were that day? Now, if I said September 11, 2001, you know where you were that day, right? The day the world stopped turning, the day of the Twin Towers and the, and the Pentagon. But May 26, 2002 was a Memorial Day. It was Memorial Day. No big deal. Vacation. A lot of people are traveling. But it's also the day in which the I-40 bridge was struck by a barge pilot who fell asleep at the helm. As he fell asleep at the helm, he drove his barge directly into one of the pylons of the bridge, and the bridge collapsed. And in the process of the bridge collapsing, an entire segment of the bridge, a span of 62 feet, fell into the river below. And drivers began, one after another, driving off the edge of this bridge right into the river below. Fortunately, it was a bass fishing day that day, and a bunch of bass fishermen were below the bridge, and as cars began to fly off the bridge into the water, these men were quick with their boats and were able to get alongside of some of the vehicles and rescue the ones who were dying. God just put them there. And as they get to some of the vehicles, they would see some were already perished from the hit of the water. 
Others were still alive, but their cars are sinking in the water. And, and as they're trying to rescue, here comes an 18-wheeler flying off the bridge into the water. And at that, one of the bassmen, fishermen thought, oh, you know what? I've got to do something to warn people not to fall off this bridge. So he reaches into his survival kit and he finds a flare gun. And he points it right at the end of the bridge and shoots the flare. At that, another 18-wheeler comes ripping over the bridge, locks up the brakes when he sees this flare explode in front of his windshield and stops as his wheels go off the edge of the bridge. The front wheels just go right off the edge and the truck stops. And immediately he lays on his horn, turns on his flashers because what does he know that everybody else behind him doesn't? The bridge is out. And here, the act of a fisherman to a trucker, to others behind, they're all trying to do what? They're all trying to warn people to stop. Don't come this way. Because if you come this way, it is certain what? Certain death. This fisherman let his missile fly up and over the edge, the last standing bridge span. The flare hits the windshield of the 18-wheeler on I-40 at 70 miles an hour. The shock driver locks his brakes up, tires slide over the front of it, and he slams his truck into reverse, pulls his wheels back off the edge of the bridge, turns his truck to block the road so nobody else can go off the end of the bridge. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the bridge, one man's quick thinking saves the people on the bridge, but another fisherman sees a man that's laying right next to the barge. He's floating on a small piece of debris from a car. And the bass fisherman fires his boat up and goes running over there as fast as he can. And he grabs the man and pulls him into his boat. And while they weren't able to save every person that day, they were able to save what? Some. Eleven people perished that day when a guy asleep at the wheel slammed into a bridge and took 11 lives into eternity. I wonder how many in the church today are asleep at the wheel when it comes to sharing the gospel. Jude is arguing the fact that we need to what? Contend for the faith. Share the gospel. Be out there actively doing something, shooting your flare gun, using your truck to block it, grabbing people out of the water, saving them from certain death. And Jude is writing to us, just like in this situation, I don't think any of us, if we were in the boats down there in the water, I don't think any of us would sit back and say, wow, what a tragedy. It's amazing we're watching this. Every person would be motivated to what? Action. Because there's a need and we fill the need, right? In an emergency. Jude has previously communicated that he wants his believers to contend for the faith, to work against the lawless heretics that are out there sharing false truths. He has labored to identify the people. He's given instruction about how to prepare themselves to defend the gospel. And now he's telling them they need to go to the ones who are teaching the, the false truth who have bought into it. So how do we reach those people who have been deceived? How do you win them? How do you, how do you share the gospel with somebody who, who's so close and yet so far away from the truth of God's word? Well, Jude begins this morning with three exhortations. And it starts, like I said, in verse 22. Look with me at verse 22. He says, have mercy on those who what? 
Have mercy on those who doubt. What does it mean to doubt? It means to be not confident, not sure. It means that the fact is not a fact to you. It's kind of more like a question. I, I think this is true, but I'm not really sure, right? Jude says we need to be sure. We need to have mercy on those who question, but we ourselves need to have the answers. We need to be ready to give an answer to any man that may ask of the hope that's within us with meekness and fear. What if they don't ask us? We still need to share it. We still need to foretell. So Jude begins his exhortation on evangelizing these people who have been deceived by reminding the church that we are called to show God's characteristics in the world that we live in. And what is one of the biggest characteristics of God after his love? Mercy. And who's the twin brother of mercy? Grace and mercy, right? You always see them together. You very rarely see them separated from each other. Because where mercy is, grace is there too. And he says, have mercy on them. The word means to show kindness or concern over somebody who's in serious need. The people that showed mercy on that day and when the barge runs into the bridge, the truck driver showed mercy. The, the fishermen showed mercy. The, guy, the fishermen who pulled the guy out of the water showed mercy. They all did something for somebody that was in trouble. Mercy is doing something for somebody else they can't do for themselves. How many have ever been lost in your car? I know every guy here has never been there. These guys are never lost. I just know where I just was. Yeah, just delayed, right? I'm taking the scenic route. How many people intentionally go out to get lost? You hear of trail runners who run a trail? They don't go out saying that, hey, man, I hope I get lost today. You know, nobody goes on a, on a trip in their car like, I really hope we get the four-hour like, detour of being lost. Nobody ever intends to go out and get lost on purpose. Lost people are lost by accident or a series of wrong choices that leads to a wrong destination. You know, as a pilot, when I fly 172s, when I take off, there's a couple things I need to know before I ever leave the ground. Number one, how much do we weigh? Because if we weigh too much, we're never going to leave. Number two, do I have enough fuel to go where I'm going? But even more important than the fuel is what? Where am I going? I got to have waypoints. I got to know how far it is. I've got to do the homework to know the mileage and the waypoints and, and all the things to make sure that not only do I get to my destination, but then I'm able to get back, right? And there's planning, there's intentionality. But lost people, when they get lost, do pilots ever get lost? Sure they do. And when we get lost, guess what we didn't do? We didn't plan or we didn't stick to the plan, right? And when we don't stick to the plan, we don't take off thinking, oh man, I hope I get lost today. That would be great to get lost in the sky. Maybe we'll end up in New Mexico. Who knows? We need to show kindness. Look what the Bible has to say about this idea of showing kindness to those who are in need. Be compassionate towards them. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 47. Check this out. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? I mean, we've all heard that. The next verse, verse 44 says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who what? Man, we're good at this as Christians, aren't we? 
that person is just a thorn in your flesh, that person that gets under your skin. I mean, we like to pray for them, right? Look at verse 45. So you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Who does He love? He loves everyone. For He makes the sun rise on evil and the good. Wow. That's like Democrats, Independents, and Republicans all are under that. Man. He sends rain on the just and the... That means on those who, who don't sin and those who do sin. Man, what kind of God is that? For if you love those who love you, what reward, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? We just got another like 87,000 of them, didn't we? Aren't you excited about that? The sun rises on them the same way it does you. What is that verse telling us? God's not particular when it comes to people. God extended his love towards who? Everyone. The just and the unjust. The godly and the ungodly. Even the tax collectors. Look what it says. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the unsaved do that? Don't even the Gentiles greet each other? You're not doing God any favors. We need to be compassionate to everybody. Check out Matthew 9.36, because Matthew backs up this, the same thing. When he saw the crowds, Jesus, he had compassion on them, because they were what? They're harassed and helpless like sheep without... Well, who was the shepherd? Jesus was. Check out Hebrews 5 and verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. You can do that, don't you? When somebody's ignorant and wayward, aren't you like compassionate on them? No, most of the time we do what? We make fun of them. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Jesus was in all points like tempted like we are, yet he didn't what? He didn't sin. He had compassion. If those who reject Christ are in danger, it's not strange. Is it not strange that we who have Jesus Christ are not sympathetic when the difficulties of the physical or temporal world apparently run into our friends and neighbors? You know, here's the thing. What do we expect sinners to be like? What do you expect unsaved people to act like? They don't act like us. And we need to be compassionate on that. We need to understand that if it were not for Jesus Christ, we would be just like them. We must realize that lost people are not stupid. They're not dumb. They're uninformed. So if you think uninformed is dumb, I guess, or stupid, then I guess that would be the case. But you know what? All we like sheep have what? The Bible says we don't even know our way. It's the shepherd that allows us to follow him. When we get lost, it's never by accident. We get there by accident. It's never because we want to do it. By the way, act people or lost people will act like what? Lost people. If we try to reform them before God transforms them, it's never going to work. It's never going to last. You know what? I can reform a drug addict or an alcoholic by locking him in a room. But what if I lock him in a room with alcohol? What's going to happen? He's not changed. He's the exact same as he was when he walked in the room. But what if God transforms somebody like that and they say, you know what? I'm never going back to it again. And you offer it to them, what are they going to do? They're going to turn it down. Why? Because they're different. 
They've been changed. They've been transformed. They've been metamorphosized, as Romans 12 talks about. A change that starts on the inside and works its way out. We don't change people from the outside in. They change from the inside out. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 screams in the verses there. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice, a living dead thing. What's a sacrifice? Something that dies. What's a living sacrifice? Something that's alive but dead at the same time. Well, if I'm alive to Christ, I'm dead to what? Myself. A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is a logical thing to do. So be transformed how? By changing your mind, having your mind renewed. What renews your mind? The Holy Spirit of God. The presence of the Holy Spirit of God is what transforms us to be able to change on the outside because he renews us. He takes the old things and passes those away and he makes all things new on the inside. And as we grow in our faith and we grow in our walk, that comes out on the outside. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. So we don't try to morally improve people before they know Christ. Moral failure may be the avenue by which God uses for you to share the gospel, but the real transformation happens. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by... The Word of God. It's the Word of God that changes people. And the Holy Spirit uses what to transform them? The Word of God. So here's what we really need to ask. Ask God to open our eyes to the condition of the people around us. To give us a brokenness over them. To soften our hardness of our heart over their rebellion. And to be prepared for God to do something with you. God wants you to share the truth with others. God wants you to be on mission and always be ready to give an answer. So we need to be compassionate, but number two, we need to be bold. Check this out. Look at verse 23 here of Jude. We need to be bold. Saving others by snatching them out of the fire. When I I read this illustration about that Memorial Day where the fisherman snatches the man out of the water. He didn't ask anybody's permission to do that, did he? He didn't call the Coast Guard. Is it okay if I uh, drive next to this barge and get this guy out from underneath the barge? Is, is that okay? He didn't ask anybody's permission. What did he do? He did what needed to be done. He saw a need and he met the need. He, he, he moved. He was moved to action. He was bold. Jude says, saving them from the fire. The word snatching or saving, it, it means to attack. We attack them. I mean, when that guy is drowning next to a barge, you're not going to pull up and be like, hey, do you need some help? How's it going? I got a boat. Would that help you any? No. You know what they did? They grabbed his shirt and they ripped him into the boat. Do you think they cared if he got scratched? He just survived a bridge fall. I don't think he cares. He's trying to save his life from drowning and gets pulled into a lifeboat. And you know what? Spiritually speaking, there are people around us that are under the attack of Satan. They're lost. They don't know where they are. They don't know what's going on in the world. They're looking for meaning in life. And we have that truth. We have the meaning to life. We have the Holy Spirit of God. So the question is, how close are we to the false teachers, remember, who claim they have the Spirit, but only use the Spirit to consume of their own desires and to use them for their own gain versus using Him to actually go out and make a difference in the world they live in. This is the call of Christianity, is do something with the faith you already have. What did Jesus do by faith for you? 
He left the Father in heaven, died on a cross for your sin, and paid a price that he didn't deserve. He took your place in sin and died in your place so that you could have eternal life. And then he simply says, follow me. Follow me. Do what I've called you to do. I bought you with a price. Look what Romans has to say about this. Romans 11, verses 13 and 14. He says, um, now, I am, now I am speaking to you Gentiles in so much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save how many of them? Not everybody could be saved that day that people were going in the river. When they were falling in the Mississippi River, they were falling in the Mississippi River. Not all of them could be saved, but some could. And Paul says, I would love to save every person I can, but I'm going to do my part. And if other people see me doing my part, maybe that'll motivate them to do their part and save some. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 9? Check this out. Paul says this, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became one as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save what? You mean everybody I share the gospel with isn't going to believe it? What? No. But we do our part. We're in our boat next to people who are drowning. We don't sit there and say, oh, I wish I had a boat. You know what? Come to the boat store with me next Sunday and we can all buy a boat together. No. You save them where they are. You rescue the perishing. Care for the dying, right? How about 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10? Check this out. As Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, may also, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal what? Why do we share the gospel? That they might have what I have. But guess what you can't share if you don't have it? And that's why we need to know that we have eternal life. We need to know what we believe. That's why we do Faith Bible Institute. So if you're not sure what the Bible teaches, well, spend time in the Word intentionally learning what the Word says. You know, I, I'm a firm believer in education. But also, also know this, with education comes responsibility and accountability. To whom much is given, much more is required. So God is not impressed with our knowledge. He's impressed when we put our knowledge to action. When we actually do something with our faith. And and. Jude is writing saying, I'm not writing to you whether or not you're saved. I know you're saved, but what are you doing with the salvation you've been given? We need to earnestly contend for the faith. By the way, the words here actually read this way. We are called to lead an assault against the bondage in people's lives by satanic forces. Remember the verse, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against what? Principalities and powers. It's spiritual warfare in the world today. That's what's going on. How many of you see good versus evil even in our own government? You see good versus evil in the world. You see good versus evil in families, right? Where do these divisions come from? Where do these wars and fightings come from? Don't they come from people who don't have the spirit? This is where it comes from. 
By the way, we are the Green Berets, the Navy SEALs, the Delta Force, the Special Ops that will storm the highest, most heavily guarded military installations that the enemy has. Contend for the faith. I, I watch the shows where the Green Berets or the Delta Force or SEALs, they do extraordinary things. They're the what? The elite of the elite, right? The best of the best. You know what every believer is in, in spiritual warfare? We're the best of the best. We're, we're what God put on the front lines. We're the ones penetrating. But then that comes with a warning. Look at verse 23 again. The very last half of this is the warning. So, be conscious of the people around you that are lost. Be looking for them. Do something about it, right? Do something. That's your mission. That's the mission that we're on, is sharing the gospel with those that are around us. To, to, to actually act on it. To be bold in acting on it. But then we need to be cautious. Look at verse 23, the end of it. We are to save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Anybody know what that last phrase means? It's kind of gross, to be honest. If you read it like in the original language, in Greek. Anybody want to take a stab at it? I know when a kid does this, nobody in the room likes it. Nobody in the room likes it. It stinks. It's nasty. Especially if it shoots out of the diaper up their back. Right? That's, that's, that's this. That's, that's a, so we're to save others by snatching them out of the fire. We're to pull them out of the water, get them in the boat, and to others... We show mercy with fear, hating even the poopy diaper that they're wearing. They've soiled themselves. They stain their garments. You know what that means? Lost people are messy. Lost people need help. How many of you have ever watched a kid run by you with a diaper that's just overloaded and you're like, where's the mom? Where's the dad? Not many of us think, where's the diaper? I'll go fix this. Right? Because that's somebody else's problem. Guess what God knew we would do spiritually? We'd think the same way. That's somebody else's problem. That's not my, whoa, I ain't touching, woo, no. I'm not touching that. Check out what he says in other portions of scripture just like this. First Corinthians. If we jump over there real quick, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that even a little leaven, leavens what? Even a little bit of sin in your life, it messes up everything in your life. Even a little bit. How about 1 Corinthians 15, 33? Don't be deceived. Bad company, what? Messes up good intentions. You know what? You run with bad people and you're, you're hoping to win them. You better be strong in your faith because the odds of them pulling you down is greater than the odds of you pulling them up. By the way, that's why he gave you a spiritual family so that we work together. What's stronger, an individual alone or a team working together? Right? How about this one? 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteous with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness, but it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them and will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Then I will what? He says, get the sin out of your life. Don't, don't take your eternal life and say, well, I got fire insurance. I can go do whatever I want now. No. He says, don't let sin reign in your life. No longer let sin control you. Instead of letting sin control you, who should control you? The Holy Spirit of God. Be controlled by the Spirit. How about Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4? It even talks about it. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. What? Where have we read that statement before? What does that mean? There are still some that haven't messed up their pants yet. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. There are some that aren't tarnishing their outer garments with the soil of the world, with the sin of the world. But instead, they're walking with me. That's the church of Sardis and the list of the seven churches of, latest of uh, Asia Minor there. You know what that tells us? None of us are beyond temptation. None of us are beyond temptation. Jesus himself was tempted, was he not? And yet, under the Holy Spirit's guidance, he was able to overcome the temptations, not using his deity that he was, had every ability to use, but instead he yielded himself to the Holy Spirit of God, and he used the Word of God to overcome temptation, just like we have to do. What are the two things we have to overcome temptation with? We have the Holy Spirit of God, which Jesus had, and the Word of God, which Jesus had and what did he use to overcome the temptation scripture he used scripture being led by the holy spirit and every time you share your faith with somebody else guess what two things you have working with you the holy spirit and scripture every time you're tempted guess what you have working with you the holy spirit and scripture that's why we can go out and we can live boldly we can live courageously in a sinful world. Even as sinners, we still shall fall short of the glory of God, but we have an empower within us that helps us do the work God's called us to do. Every Christian should develop a deep-seated hatred for sin and a fear of disappointing the audience of one. I'll be honest, when it comes to my sin, I don't really care what everybody in here thinks. There's one person that really matters. And if I please him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be right with you all too. But if I'm messed up with him, guess who I'm going to be messed up with as well? So if I'm not treating you right, guess who else I'm not treating right? It, it's that easy. It's that simple. And Jude's saying, as we contend for the faith, be sure we watch ourselves. This reminds me of another story I read. The year on this one's 1985. It's August 1st. So the, they just had the anniversary of this event happen. There was a party around the pool that was held to celebrate the first summer in ever recorded without a drowning at the New Orleans Recreation Department City Pool. All the lifeguards in the city came to the pool. A hundred of them. They were allowed to bring one guest. 200 people are around the pool. Four lifeguards are on duty to celebrate the year that nobody died in a swimming pool. 
The party goes on for about two hours. They're swimming. They're playing in the water. Finally, the lifeguards say, all right, it's done. It's over. They get out of the water. Everybody's celebrating the fact that they haven't lost a life. And then the deep end of the pool, 31-year-old man, fully clothed in the bottom of the pool. hundred certified lifeguards, another hundred innocent people, and yet Jerome Moody, 31 of New Orleans, is laying in the deep end, face down at the bottom of the pool. How could it happen that a hundred people who could save lives and are celebrating the fact that they saved lives didn't see somebody drowned in the pool while they're celebrating the fact they didn't lose anybody? The irony of it, right? 1985, August 1st. He had drowned, surrounded by lifeguards, celebrating the success of their saving of lives. Let me just give you a couple statistics as we close. Sobering statistics that we, that we shouldn't celebrate. 95% of all Christians have never won a single soul to Jesus Christ. That means, on average, one person in this room has actually seen somebody get saved. That's pretty sobering. Number two, 80% of Christians do not consistently witness to anybody about their, their common salvation in Jesus Christ. 80%. I'll give you another statistic. Less than 2% of all Christians are involved in any type of ministry of evangelism in any form. Any form. So while we celebrate the common salvation that we have, Jude says what? Contend for the faith. What's the modern church doing? We're not contending for the faith. By the way, this isn't Baptist numbers. These are church numbers. This is like, this is like all churches combined. Barnapole. So what? The clock of life is round but once. A man and no man has the power. To tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is more. To lose one's soul is such a loss that not one man can restore. In the hour that we've been together, 5,417 people died in the world today. Do we care? Does that matter to us? Does that affect us or prick us in any way? So I leave you with a final question. Here's the task. So what? What do you want us to do, Pastor Joe? What is the mission God is asking us to do? Well, Jude is really writing to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, what are you doing to help reach them with the gospel before those 5,700 people are cast in the lake of fire this next time or into hell this next time, which ultimately ends in the lake of fire? What are you personally doing about it? Who are you personally working with? Who are you personally discipling? Who are you personally involved with? Jude is not writing about the common salvation. We all have that. We can take a victory lap on that, right? We can have a pool party. Meanwhile, Jerome Moody's laying in the deep end of the pool, spending eternity somewhere. Where's he staying? Where's he at? We have the opportunity to share the gospel. We have the opportunity to block the highway 
to save people from going off the bridge. We have the opportunity to reach out of our fishing boat and pull the guy into the boat. We have the opportunity through the Word of God, through your testimony, and through the church, we have the opportunity to save people from an eternity separated from God. I'm glad that John 3.16 is true. God loved me enough that he sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I know that I'm going to spend eternity in heaven, but I want others to come with me. I don't want to leave people behind. And God has allowed us the ministry of sharing the gospel with those that need to hear. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the mission Jude's calling us to. And next week, Lord willing, as we wrap up this book, we're going to look at the prayer that he has for all saints for all time. Now unto him who is able. The only reason we can even do this mission is God is able. The Holy Spirit empowers us and leads us and guides us. So what are you going to do? God is giving you seven days this week. It's the beginning of the week. You have seven days to do something for God on mission. What are you going to do for him this week for his glory and for his majesty and for his dominion, both now and forever? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it is quick and powerful. I thank you for this book, Lord, that is so concise, but yet so powerful in its message. And Lord, as we study, I pray, Lord, that we would be approved workmen, not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, and that, Father, we would be so convinced of that truth that it motivates us to do something. Lord, your love, or Father, your love motivated Jesus Christ to come and die in our place. It was Jesus Christ's desire to be with the Father that motivated the Holy Spirit to come for such a time as this to empower us and to educate us and to lead us into this life to be able to live it for Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that as your church, as the ones who are called out by your name to share the hope that's within us, that we would go into all the world and we would help educate those who are uneducated, that we would help those who are lost and we would come alongside and say, walk, follow me as I follow Christ, as Paul was able to do. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would have compassion, but we would be bold and we would be careful to watch our own lives, to make sure that we are taking care of the sin in our lives. And thank you, Father, for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive and to thoroughly scrub us from all ungodliness. And Father, I thank you that we can stand boldly before you because of what Jesus Christ has done in the work that he did and not of our own works, lest we would brag about it. But God, it was your grace It was your love and your grace towards us and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. So Father, I pray that we would go this week and we would live a life that glorifies you, that we would live a life that shows we worship you, we value you. And Lord, that we would live a life that convinces others to talk about their faith as we here in this church talk about our faith. May we do so with others for your glory. In your name we pray, all God's people said. Join me in standing. We're going to sing a final song. What a beautiful...